The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition, and a special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. It's available hour by hour. There's another edition, if you didn't know, tomorrow night from 8pm. And a special heads-up for tomorrow night. We're linking two things together. There's a re-issue, republication of a tremendous book at one best science writing, 2011. Kākāpō, Rescued from the Brink of Extinction. And it's updated. We speak with the author, Alison Balance. The first attempt to try and save the damn bird and others was made by a character called Richard Henry. And he will be our subject for Outsiders after we have a chat with Alison Balance tomorrow night. Um, I know usually Saturdays we uh, devote to some environmental things, but who cares? We can make the rules. That's tomorrow night because we're going to play Richard Henry, his story. Uh, the world's first conservationist, I maintain. He was new, uh, came from Ireland, came to New Zealand, and he Dunkirked. He, he got it right as far as what to do with our birds, but he got it wrong by about a kilometre and it's one of the biggest stories of heartbreak you can imagine. It is really a shocker. In fact, you could begin his story of conversation with this that happened. He'd um, been trying to convince people that we've got to get our birds onto sanctuary offshore islands and people weren't listening to him. He wasn't universally, university educated, uh, but he was a smart guy with a great eye. This is a little bit from his biography. He was very depressed. He'd lost in love. Nobody was listening to him. He was in Auckland at the time. Quietly and rationally, he carried out his plan, certain that none would suffer by his action, that he had settled all his debts to the last shilling, and that his body would be unidentified Henry crept shakily away like a wounded animal to die in a quiet corner apart. He stumbled across a bridge somewhere and scattered his last few shillings about uselessly. Then he took out a six-chambered revolver and shot himself. The gun did go off and the bullet lodged in his skull. So he loaded it up again and had another go. And the revolver jammed. And that's before the heartbreak starts. Listen to that story tomorrow after 11 o'clock. Science this hour, we're underway. It's all groovy. Uh, octopuses on ecstasy. And we're not kidding. It's not a euphemism for anything. Octopuses on party drugs up next with Emily Park. Good evening. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Science Report this week with Auckland University's Philosophy of Science, Professor 
Emily Park. You're Philos- a professor? Philosopher. 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 Uh, okay, well, you've got some cracking stories this week. Sometimes you talk about viruses. You've actually got, well, you've brought one sh- in today, show and tell. Yeah, fun times. Got oh. the nasty cough going around. Oh, you poor thing. You're a soldier. Thank you for doing this. No worries. Um, but you have a cracking story that I think you're quite glad to put your hand up and grab. Octopuses, that is the plural of octopus, isn't it, apparently? I actually, I tried to get myself a straight answer to this before coming in today, and uh, there is one. I had a PhD student who wrote her PhD on octopus cognition who just graduated, Sydney Diamante, look up her work. Um, but she's not here today to ask, so... Oh, okay. I, and we'll I don't go. want to embarrass myself by saying the wrong one, but I think it's octopuses. We'll go for octopuses today. Uh, now... Uh, they're pretty intelligent creatures. They're amazingly intelligent. Uh, someone's given them some ecstasy. Did they go downtown to a rave? Not quite. Um, but yeah, can we just talk about how amazing they are for a minute before sure. we get to the ecstasy? Octopuses are so cool. So everyone's heard of Inky, who escaped from the New Zealand National Aquarium, I think it was in 2016. So that was a cool story. He like squeezed through some drain pipe and made it back to the sea. Was on um, the run. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there was, so there was another case, I think it was at the Seattle Aquarium, um, some further years back, where there was an octopus that would escape from its tank at night, eat fish out of another tank, and then go back to its own tank before the aquarium workers showed up in the morning. They caught yeah. the video. It would get up to things at night. They yeah. couldn't figure out what was happening. They, yeah. They'd checked for poltergeists. Um, they found out it was an octopus. Yeah. Yeah. So octopuses are incredible. They have amazing brains. I've actually gone off eating them. I know they taste really nice, but I feel funny about eating an octopus now. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of people who will eat other animals, but not them. Mm. Because they're super smart. But the really interesting thing about how smart they are is that they're really intelligent and they display all this amazing behavior, but they're really deeply separated from us in evolution. So, like, more than 500 million years. Mm. Um, so the structure of their brains is really different from ours. And... Um, you can think of it like their intelligence arose independently from ours in certain ways, yeah. in, evolutionarily speaking. And maybe that's why it's uh, a really good pick for the people who do The Simpsons to have their aliens as octopuses. I mean, it's a good thing. Right. They are like aliens. I rate them. I, I give them good chances for the future of running the show. Yeah, totally. So there's this paper out in Current Biology just this week uh, that got a lot of press last week. Um, where researchers are looking at octopuses' genomes, and in particular looking at this gene called SLC6A4, which has to do with the part of the brain involved in the neurotransmitter serotonin, which uh, we know about having to do with our moods, depression, and so forth, and also responses to different uh, psychoactive drugs. So this gene also involves the part of the brain known to be involved in how MDMA or ecstasy works. So that leads to this... Um, quite obvious and burning question, which is what happens when you give MDMA to an octopus. So someone found out? Someone found out. Um, They took four octopuses and put them in beakers with liquid MDMA so they could absorb it through their gills. That's that's how octopuses take ecstasy, obviously. Yeah. And then, um, so this is a particular kind of octopus that doesn't like hanging out with other octopuses. It's solitary. It likes to be by itself. So... They set up this experiment where they had three chambers in a tank, an empty one, and one that had like a plastic figurine in it, and then one that had an actual living octopus. When you say this octopus liked to hang out by itself, is it a type of a species that likes to hang out by itself, or is it uh, just its nature? Yeah, it's a species, well, 
I mean, species don't really have natures, I guess, but it's both. It's a, it's a species of octopus that likes to live solitarily okay, gotcha. in, the, in the wild yeah. um, and in labs. Not it just doesn't a, like... a, a peccadillo of his personality. Right, no. no. It's a species of octopus that okay. lives alone. Gotcha. Um, so they, they set up these three tanks, an empty one, one with a figurine under a cage, and one with another live octopus under a cage. When they weren't on ecstasy, they didn't want to go near the other octopus. But after hanging out in the beaker with the ecstasy and absorbing it, um, they spent most of their time in the chamber with the other octopus and not only in there with it, but kind of like stroking it and kissing it and stuff, giving it octopus kisses. Um, they are going to take over, aren't they? Yeah. When we've gone, this is amazing. I know. Yeah. Because this isn't just as I tried to make, I wanted to get clear, it isn't a, an octopus with a sort of a personality uh, trait of well, being a loner, um, but it's a type of octopus that likes to be alone. Well, and, like, it, and now it's just chumming up and stroking another octopus. Yeah, I think, I didn't do all my research on this, but I think many, if not most, octopus species live, live by themselves in general. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was displaying this uncharacteristic behavior, at least for this type of octopus, wanting to be up near another one. Apparently, they, they only do that when they're trying to mate. But Oh, yeah. wow. Far out. Uh, just, would it have been a pleasurable experience? Because if it generally likes to be alone, it's like, oh... I suppose they, no one's pointing a gun at its head saying move over. It's doing it by itself, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And Chumming they, up. They tried different combinations, uh, males, males, and so forth. So it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily that they were just randomly displaying mating behavior. They were definitely reacting differently when on the MDMA. Um, <coughs> so, yeah, so, so the point of this study is meant to be there's some really deep evolutionary role for serotonin's effect on these so-called pro-social behaviors where you right. want to... But really, it's just quite cool that they gave an octopus ecstasy and it acted like humans do. <laughs> All right, we'll stay in the sea. Yeah. And some sea critters have been discovered, um, very deep sea critters. They, they turn up, don't they? And they're, they're almost always somebody finds something new because uh, nobody really goes and looks there that often because it's really, really hard. Yeah. Have you seen those blue planet? Uh, yeah. Like there was a new blue planet recently with the deep sea... Yeah, that stuff's amazing. Yeah. Um, so there was a piece in Nature a few days ago reporting on the Deep Sea Biology Symposium in Monterey, California. Um, I guess some of this is unpublished research because I couldn't find all of it, but there, um, there's this area of the Central Pacific Ocean, about 6 million square kilometers and about four to five and a half hundred meters deep, so really deep. Um, and researchers are finding all these awesome critters there. So over 100 deep-sea worm species that were previously unknown to science, these sea cucumbers that are called gummy squirrels, uh, about 60 centimeters long. If you Google gummy squirrel, you'll get a lot of pictures that aren't these things. Oh. Um, but if you find a picture... It's of not them, code for something that you have to watch out for, is no, it? No, no, nothing like that. Like, there's a bunch of pictures of people who have stuck ta tails onto gummy bears. Oh, okay. And I think that's why they're called that. They're these weird sort of cucumbery looking things with long uh, right. projectile bits coming off. They're really cool looking. Mm -hmm. um, these organisms called xenophyophores that are about bigger than your fist, but they're a single cell and apparently exude... No, they're not. Yeah. Really? Yeah. A single cell as big as your fist? Yep, and they exude slime as they feed. 
Nice. Um, but the coolest thing, I thought, was these fossilized whale bones that someone found from extinct whale species that they estimated had sunk down there between 1 and 16 million years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. Lack of oxygen just not breaking it down, I suppose, is it? I don't know. Very cool stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. But, yeah, so so the, the context for this, which leads to some sort of interesting ethical questions, is that the International Seabed Authority who control mining regulations have given a bunch of companies and countries permission to explore mining opportunities there because this area of the sea is also home to a bunch of um, rare earth elements that industry likes to use to make our techie gadgets, right. smartphones and so forth. They're essential, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and they're hard to find. Um, right. And other things that, yeah, okay. Uh, so um, it's nice to have the internet and phones and equipment that works, isn't it? So uh, see you later, sea creatures. I guess so, yeah. I mean, apparently they're going to publish some regulations in 2020 and the companies are pushing them to say, like, hey, let us let us drill down there and dig up the stuff so we can make the next iPhones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, interesting, interesting sort of ethical conundrum there. I mean... Just like 10-second philosophy lesson, there's sort of at least two approaches to thinking about ethical questions like this. You could think about rules or consequences. So you might think there's a rule like we should never let, you know, evil corporations drill into untouched natural spaces, Mm. Um, in which case this would fall under any other case like this. But a lot of people like to think about this in terms of cost-benefit analyses, like, you know, how many units of happiness will it give us to make lots of smartphones versus the harm caused to nature. Right. But the problem here is that we have no idea because we don't even know what's down there. These are like preliminary reports on this part of the sea that we know about as much as, you know, we know very little about what all is down there. Mm. All right. uh, Another, I suppose you could say on a bit of a conservation or natural history bent, uh, this BPA-free plastic stuff, we shouldn't be too um, smug and thinking, oh, that's that's really good, let's uh, rock on. Just explain, p- get people up to speed if they're not here. BPA uh, plastic, what is it? Yeah, so so BPA, bisphenol A, is an uh, um, ingredient in plastic. I'm not a material scientist, so I'm not sure how up to speed I can get people on the details, but it's this key ingredient in plastics and, like, bottles and cups and all the plastic stuff that we use. Um, Brutally polluting ass. Yeah, so about 20 years ago, researchers figured out that BPA is bad for you. And I guess the way they figured this out was because um, it's a common ingredient in so many plastic things, including uh, the cages that lab mice are housed in. And I guess one of the first pieces of evidence that it was bad was that it leached out of plastic cages with female lab mice in them and ended up causing chromosomal abnormalities in their eggs so we've since done all these studies and figured out it's bad for humans in similar ways and bpa free stuff has become very popular Mm -hmm. um it turns out bpa free stuff contains other bisphenols it just doesn't contain bisphenol a um and so these alternative materials are in the bottles and cups and lab mouse cages and everything else that we use that has BPA-free plastic. And uh, perhaps not too surprisingly, new research is showing that the same sorts of issues in BPA appear to be involved here as well. So the most recent study that came out on this was also on mice. Uh And um, 
you know, sometimes we question toxicity studies on mice because, you know, sometimes it's like they loaded the mice full of a thousand times the amount that we would ever be exposed to. Oh, right, yeah. But in this case, um, the exposure that the mice had was quite variable and roughly at the level that you'd expect humans to be exposed to. Oh, that's worrisome. Yeah, so the upshot was uh, BPA-free is a great marketing tool, but uh, you should probably be worried about any plastic that's not shiny and new. Once okay. it starts to break down, it could be leaching stuff out and right. killing your eggs and sperm. Well, what we should do with it? We burn it. That's not good, is it? Um, maybe it is good. Just should buy I... a new one every day. But where does the old one go? Just in the rubbish. In I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> in a single-use plastic bag. Let's yeah, go for it. Exactly. All right. <laughs> I feel for that poor guy who tried his best um, and had all the best intentions. He found out that lead was really good for um, putting in petrol. It makes your car go really good. Right. He it took a lot of work for him to figure that out. He tried all sorts of different things. Ground up ants, put them in. Henbane found lead was really good. And then it created all those problems, really serious problems, sociological problems. And he felt really bad about being the man who put lead in petrol, so he worked his ass off to find a refrigerant that was inert and would not react with anything else. Mm -hmm. So he discovered chlorofluorocarbons and put them in refrigerators. Right. And caused a hell of a hole in the ozone. Yeah, that didn't go so well. Poor guy, really. Yeah. He didn't mean to do all that, but he did do that. Emily Park, fascinating stuff. Octopuses on ecstasy. Um, I suspect some of these lab octopuses might be going out to see if they can get some more. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, they're good at escaping, so they could all be <laughs> at the clubs by now. <laughs> Fabulous stuff. Next up, the astronomy news with Grant Christie. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless, on Radio Live. Astronomy Today, with Dr Grant Christie. And here he is for all the astronomy news of the week. Grant Christie, hello. Hi, Graham. Uh, now we have some complimentary links up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Uh, just use Google to find it and click on the thing that says click here for this weekend's rundown and those links will be there. Some of them uh, will be, we will be talking about uh, each of them, the subject matter anyway. And one of the big news is, along with this discovery of an exomoon, um, mascot has uh, has landed on asteroid Ryugu and this is this asteroid being visited and they're throwing various bits of equipment from PB Tech on it uh, to grab some stuff and bring it back. A very, very ancient asteroid, could be older than the sun. Uh, there's the preface. Shall we take it from there? We've got a picture of the thing up close. Yeah, this is uh, an image taken from the uh, little mascot lander. It's called mascot. It stands for something. Doesn't matter. Um, and uh, it was released uh, from uh, Hayabusa 2, mm. and it uh, gradually drifted down. 
and then I think once it got to about 50 metres away, it then just went into kind of like a free fall drop. But uh, it, but the gravity's so weak that uh, if you drop something on Earth from 50 metres up, it would hit with a hell of a clunk. This thing just came in really gently and softly and touched down and took pictures as it came down. So it's only got a, a, a battery life for about 16 hours, so that's all over and done with now. But it's uh, And it's transmitting data it's collected. Uh, so it took images on its way down, um, and it also had the ability to jump around on the surface. It's just got a little lever inside that goes kind of flat. Uh, and do. that tiny little motion inside causes the thing to bounce around and move. So uh, pretty rudimentary things, but this is the first time any object has really been landed on the surface of uh, an asteroid uh, of this type. Um, or it, the, In fact, uh, Hayabusa 2 dropped a couple of smaller ones mm. earlier. But this one's actually taking a lot of measurements uh, of things like the solar wind and the magnetic field and and that sort of material, uh, um, so it's uh, it's getting a bit of extra. It's it's not going to sort of probably make some huge discoveries, but it's more than just a technical uh, achievement of getting uh, things to land on such yeah. a tiny object and actually do some science. Right. It's not fake, does it? It could be just a photograph taken at night with a flash of some earthworks next to um, uh, the, the motorway just south of Tiawamudu, couldn't it? <laughs> well, that's right. It could, it could be, Graham. <laughs> but you can see the shadow of that other thing. But Yeah, that's right. So when it's approaching the asteroid, the sun's directly behind it. So in yeah. each case, the spacecraft's shadow has ended up on the uh, in the picture, so that's kind of neat. Well, we know what that thing looks like now, so let's get faking this. We could be easy to do some fake ones and put them up online. I'm not encouraging you, anyway. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, you could do. I mean, there's lots of scoriaceous rocks around Auckland that yeah. you go and take a close-up picture. That would be a pretty good approximation on a small scale of what yeah. you see there. Okay, um, but it's important stuff because it's older than the sun. Yes, well, this, this asteroid was chosen because of it is very primitive. Its, uh, its composition suggests that it might have been part of the material the solar system was born from right. and built from. And so they're really keen to get uh, pristine studies of this stuff uh, because it helps to um, improve their computer simulations of how the solar system evolved, why the planets have their particular compositions. Uh, you start off with the raw materials and you try to build up a model that produces the solar system we see today and so this is the first really good go apart from a few rare meteorites that we have on earth that have a similar origin they've all been smashed up in big collisions this is sort of pretty much uh, pristine mm. it hasn't been uh, hugely uh, smashed about and what's its orbit do we know is it in an internal kind of like uh, terrestrial planet's orbit or is it, does it go miles and miles away? No, no, it's well, it's in sort of like broadly the asteroid belt. Okay. Um, sort of orbiting in that general area of the solar system. Nothing particularly extraordinary about it. Okay, all right. Uh, and also we have a link to an image. This is the winner. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da. Astronomy picture. Um, and he's won more than once. It's an absolutely stunning image of a total solar eclipse. And uh, I know there are plenty well, plenty of them. But, um, well, it was the one last year in America. And you know how many pictures that was the most yeah. photographed 
solar eclipse ever. Yeah. Um, and the photographer is Kenrick Maher, an Aucklander who's exceptionally skilled at astrophotography. He's This is now the third time he's taken away the top prize in this competition that's been going sort of around about, you know, the 20 years or so now. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I saw a lot of pictures of that solar eclipse that were online, yeah. and this is unquestionably the best. It takes incredible technical skill to actually bring out all the super faint details uh, that other people's pictures don't include, including the sort of, you know, the, well, just the very fine detail of the cor- the sun's corona, which is you can s- becomes visible for a brief time, a matter of maybe seven minutes or something, or six or seven minutes that, mm. that it was visible, and you have to take all your images in that time, and then the image processing needed to bring out just the very faintest details, as, uh, which most people's photos don't reproduce. You can see the features of the moon. That's right. There's, uh, you can just see the back, uh, the, the, you know, the backlit moon, mm. um, which is backlit by the Earth. But, yeah, uh, that's Earth that, shine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's an extraordinary image, and... Uh, um, I'd only seen another one like it, but not on this eclipse. Uh, another eclipse that occurred um, in the past, and they've done some, you know, s- something comparable. But uh, this was the best one, and uh, technically amazing. Okay, and also the merging of two supermassive black holes. This is an explanatory video, and um, what are we looking at? Okay, so the the context here is, I mean, we've we've actually witnessed with the gravitational sort of, uh, you know, the um, LIGO LIGO experiments, we've actually directly witnessed two or or a number of these binary mergers. Now, those are stellar mass black holes. Those are sort of maybe a similar mass to heavy stars, Mm -hmm. and they've spun down and and formed. But what we've never seen is the merger of supermassive black holes that reside in the centre of galaxies. And we know a number of these that are orbiting each other, but we've just never seen them merge. Um, they, they, what would they merge into, and can we see that? Well, they'd just merge into a much bigger black hole again. So these things could be many millions of times the mass of our sun. So these are a different class of object altogether. Um, and this is the most detailed computer simulation based on all the physics we know of, of what one of these mergers would do. Um, you, why do you end up with two black holes orbiting each other in the centre of a galaxy? It's because the galaxy was once two separate galaxies that merged. So it's a result of a merger and each one brought its supermassive black hole to the party. Because they're so massive, they easily sink to the centre of the new merged galaxy. That takes, and the mergers take place over many hundreds of millions of years. It's not something that just happens quickly, mm-hmm. but gradually those black holes merge and find each other and end up orbiting. And we know that from general relativity, they're radiating away gravitational energy and they're winding down, but on a time scales of billions of years. Sooner or later, now that we've got the technology to measure the sort of these sort of mergers or getting the technology to, from detecting gravitational waves, we will one day see a cosmological merger of two supermassive black holes. But in the meantime, this is the best we've got, and it shows it in amazing detail. And that's only the last 40 orbits. And by this stage, they're into their 40 or, last 40 orbits, they're spinning at you know sort of a good percentage of the speed of light. So oh, you imagine that mucks up two everything. objects. Just try to imagine hundreds of millions of times more massive than our sun. Yeah. Um, and uh, much more massive than the black hole in the middle of our galaxy. And just imagine two monsters like that spiralling around. So, I mean, it would just be, at, I mean, if you were watching it, uh, at the speed of light, you wouldn't see them, you wouldn't, your eyes wouldn't be able to sort of see them at all, of uh. course. But it's a, 
you know, just mind-blowing, the yeah. physics of what's going on there and the fact that, the you know, general relativity, Einstein's theory, written down with pencil and paper in yep. 1915, explains it yeah. and predicts it. And you may have a look at that video. It's worth explaining that this isn't video put together as someone going, I reckon that would happen, and I you know, have them spinning around a bit there more, will you, Charlie? Yeah, it's not yeah, an it, artist. Yes, it, right. It's not an artist's impression. This is this based is the, on physics. Yeah. A huge amount of computation needed to do this. Um, That's why it hasn't been done before. When you turn on this computer, the lights in Las Vegas <laughs> dim. You need supercomputers and a lot of time on them, which yeah. is extremely expensive, um, and the theory is very complicated. So most people who set up programs to compute in general relativity tend to have to make some approximations at some point just to get this stuff done. This is the most detailed representation of the physics of what we would see yep. in the last blink of an eye, yeah. last milliseconds before those things merged into a single object. Whoa. And when they did that, they would be firing off immensely powerful gravitational waves that would ripple right through the fabric of the universe and make our gravitational wave detectors sort of shrink shrink and stretch as they as those the, the the distortions of the space itself traveled through the earth at the speed of light and it's only because the speed of light is constant that you can measure the damn thing i suppose yes in that's that right. LIGO. that's right right it's, it's like uh, yeah so it's really hard to visualize this idea that sort of space itself distorts and carries waves and that was the sort of astounding thing that einstein realized in order to produce a rational theory of gravity that yeah. sort of, you know, conforms with common sense at the end of the day, you have to have that. It, it, is, a, it is an essential part of the theory. And now we have the technology to detect those waves directly. If these two supermassive black holes were to merge and you were um, nearby, I mean, you wouldn't want to be, would you? If this is going to be it kind of a big... It would be a pretty hot place to be anywhere. Okay. Worse than Bikini Atoll, Well, possibly, you know, if the galaxy's big enough and, uh, like, if Milky Way had another black hole orbiting our existing one and they mm. merged, um, yes, uh, I don't believe it would have any real effect on us where we are. OK, but if you were ne nearby, hard, if, hard hat but essential. The, but there could well be a jet of very high... In it, high velocity um, or very energetic um, material being shot out through the poles okay. of that uh, and that would be, um, you wouldn't want to be in the line of that. No. All right, exomoon time. Um, oh, to be frank, there are some discoveries. I could be dead wrong about this, but some discoveries I go, oh, yeah, well, we expected that. It's like, let's say somebody discovered a planet uh, orbiting another star that had rings around it. Yeah. I'd go, well, yeah, good. Yeah. We'd expect that, wouldn't we? Is this something we expect or um, is there more well, to it? Well, you know, the planets in our solar system have satellites. I mm -hmm. mean, Jupiter's got four moons. We've got one. You know, there's, there's lots of satellites in our solar system. So we would expect to find them. The trouble is that they're so tiny compared with planets. I mean, we can only just find the planets. And, you know, is it possible to find moons going around those planets. Now, the so this study that's just been published is one where um, they knew there was a planet going around a star uh, from the Kepler stuff, uh, yep. the Kepler survey. Um, it was a Jupiter mass sort of sized object and every uh, couple of hundred days it 
287 days, it passed in front of its star and caused a little dip in the brightness of the star as it went in front. We were looking edge on at its orbit. Uh, that was just coincidence. So it was, it's an interesting thing to study from that. So it, Kepler found thousands of these sort of objects. Yeah. Now, if you look at it, though, with the Hubble Space Telescope, which can do much, much more precise measurements of brightness, when, when this thing, when this, this uh, planet transits across the face of its star, uh, then uh, they wanted to know whether it had, they could detect it, moons going around, because the moons would be silhouetted against the star as well. Ah. And so if a moon was there, it would cause an extra little dip in brightness that you couldn't account for by the planet. So, so basically that's the situation they've been looking at. Um, at the moment, the, the data... It's not a it's not a certainty. There's still other issues. Uh, astronomers and uh, as a whole are not convinced. It's an interesting study. It's been put out there. It's been published. That's fine. Um, but there are there are other issues. There are, there's because you're looking for such a, a detection right at the limit of what the Hubble Space Telescope can do. Mm. Um, then uh, obviously there's things like issues in the instrumentation and the control of the spacecraft that you know you wonder about the influence of that. Um, it could be that there's a, another planet going around the star as well and it's not a... So the dip's caused by another planet, not something mm -hmm. that just by coincidence you happen to have two planets going across the face of the star at the same time. So it's you can't tell that the that extra little dip is absolutely caused by something orbiting the, uh, the planet itself. And the other problem really is also that this object to account for the dip in brightness would have to be sort of kind of like the size and mass of Neptune. So how Which big is Kepler? Neptune's enormously, it's, yeah. uh, Jupiter's much bigger than Neptune. But, but how big is Kepler-162-5b? It must be massive if it's got a Neptune-sized moon. Well, no, this is the problem, that it's actually a sort of, a, this is the thing, it's a Jupiter sort of class planet. Not a sort of a you know enormously bright version of Jupiter, uh, and so this moon is way out of whack with anything that we see in our solar system. So oh. in other words, it's a big object. You could almost think of it more like a binary planet right. than a um, planet and a moon, like Pluto and Charon. Yes, that's right. That sort of situation. But also, when the people have run computer models showing the simulation and how planets build, and they've got these, they run these sort of things all the time. No models have ever really predicted in any planet formation scenario that we can we have at the present time on the books on the table uh, a a massive planet jupiter class planet that would actually end up with something like that you'd all end up with things like europa and yeah. and uh, you know the ganymede and these sort of things which are tiny they're yeah, this sort yeah. of size of our moon yeah. compared with the size of jupiter so jupiter is 320 times the size of the earth and the Earth's much big, you know, 80 yeah. times bigger than our moon. So that puts it in context. So the only things, satellites we find going around um, planets are a lot, lot smaller than the planet. This would put right. them uh, up there into a different class. Right, and so, so it's, this really it's, is no, weird. No theories have predicted this. Yeah. So, those are the, so those are the questions. I mean, there's, uh, it'll be studied again, uh, no doubt. They're going to wait till it comes around again, another 287 days, I think, in May. They've got more time on the Hubble Space Telescope. And they'll see whether it confirms. If it's just another planet that happens to be going across, you won't see it because the chance of that happening twice in an orbit is right. you know, practically is zero. So, so that, that would get that off the table. So, so the jury's out. 
the jury's still out. I mean, it's um, it's it's interesting, it's intriguing, um, and uh, you could say, as the, the headlines say, it, it boosts the argument that that this could be an exomoon, but there's still mm. a lot of questions they've got to answer before it really is going to convince most astronomers. Right, but if and it's it, an exomoon... And it took 40 hours of telescope time in the Hubble Space Telescope. Oh. 40 hours of time, that's... You, they charge time by the second on the Hubble Space Telescope. Oh, I've been into <laughs> recording studios to do that. Yeah. Oh, wow, far out. Well, that would be a particularly weird thing if it is confirmed and hard to imagine. It's uh, when it said exomoon. Well, I think, yeah, more like a binary planet Yeah, system. so it would be... It would be probably more, uh, you'd start to sort of think of it. I mean, there's still a big imbalance between them, but it's still, yeah. But the, the thing that bothers me most is that of all the planetary formation, the, the, this is a very active area of research, mm. how planets can be built out of the gas and ices that are in a in a disk around a new star that's we, we see these disks that, that the physics of that is reasonably well understood um and none of the computer models of that scenario produce this outcome mm. so far so okay. far all right now i do find this exciting a new object's been found far out in the solar system uh if you were to see a graphic depiction of its orbit. I mean, Pluto is right bang in the middle, close, close, close to the sun uh, in this descriptor, but it's got a weird orbit and it may uh, be pointing yet another arrow of evidence to this planet nine that's hanging out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly not contrary to that theory, which is what... Uh you know, people have been looking for. So so the theory is that out in the outer solar system, uh, based on the fact that there's a, a, a surprising number of the objects we're finding, and there's not many of them, they're very hard to find, they're a very long way away, they're much further away, like 10 times further away than Pluto and mm. smaller, so they're hard to find, they're very faint, but they've now got a, a dozen or so of these, and the the latest one, uh, the, the, well, the peculiarity about them, Graham, was that their orbits were all curiously aligned in a particular way. And you can actually show that you'd get that if there was a massive planet out there, maybe sort of the orbit of uh, 10 times the Earth or something like that, uh, in the very distant reaches of the solar system. And that massive planet would act like a sort of a, a sheepdog shepherding sheep and bring them and cause their orbits all to sort of kind of be restricted to a certain part of space mm. and align in a particular way. And that's what they're seeing. And this one is fits that pattern. So this actually strengthens the argument that there is this uh, more massive uh, planet waiting to be discovered further out in the solar system. And and this one, in its closest, it only gets to about um, uh, about twice the distance of Pluto away. Mm. So that, that's at its closest. It's relatively close on its orbit at the moment. But it goes out like, you know, Looks like hundreds of Well, it goes times. out uh, to 2,300 astronomical units. An astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Uh -huh. So 2,300 times that. Pluto's about 35 times or 40 times. Mm. So this thing here going out to 2,300 times in its outer part of its orbit goes out a very, very long way indeed. But it, the crucial thing is its alignment agrees with the hypothesis that there is a massive planet there. Um, we're still only scratching the surface. We, the, the, there'll be th many th thousands and thousands of objects out there and we've got to find more. And that's what these big telescope Does surveys this are doing. help us point to where the damn thing might be? It, it doesn't, unfortunately. Oh. I mean, the, at the moment, we, we can all they can say is that you can make this consistent with a planet going around its orbit, but the plan that planet could be um, 
at the part of its orbit that's a long way from the sun, in which case it's going to be very hard to find. But the, the good news is that in, in a, three or four years' time, there's a huge survey telescope starting up, and that's going to find it for sure, because it's going to image the entire sky um, every five days to incredibly faint limits. Infrared? Um, wide range of wavelengths, okay. yeah. So it, it will definitely, there's no question that if it exists, the uh, Large Synoptic Survey Telescope will find it. Um, so at the moment, of course, astronomers who are interested in this stuff want to beat LLST. They know that LLST will find it. Oh. Um, and uh, so they're really anxious to try to nail it first. So Subaru Telescope, which is a huge, extremely capable telescope on the summit of Mauna Kea in Hawaii, is uh, also you know, running in survey mode, searching where this... But it's a huge area of sky to search. Mm. And you have to take multiple images of that same piece of sky in order to detect anything that moves. You're taking one picture doesn't help you. Mm. You know, hoping you've for actually a bit of luck. got to see the sucker move. They're hoping for a bit of luck. Yeah, well, you'd have to be counted as lucky. But I mean, the fact Subaru telescope times are expensive, and they obviously think that the the sort of um, kudos from making a positive discovery of this object uh, is is important. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, nice. their, their telescope's capable of doing it. It's just their field of view is not big enough and they're not sampling fast enough. So that's why the LST might run over the top of them in the future. Nice that it's called Subaru, um, if most people know, I think, but it's the Matariki Seven Sisters that's in right. Japanese, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, nothing to do with the motor car, it, as it happens. They just happen to share the same yeah. emblem. But, uh, nice. Yeah, no. So, so, yeah, it's a Japanese instrument. Fantastically good optics, uh, mm. very, very efficient uh, for survey, uh, mm. taking surveys and looking at um, really faint stuff in the in the universe. But the Subaru motor car's logo is the seven, indeed, the, the indeed. Pleiades. I actually drive one. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I keep that logo polished. <laughs> <laughs> Rest of the car's rubbish. Good <laughs> for you. Okay, Oumuamua was this weird shard-like thing that came to visit from another star. Uh, well, it's not the only one by prediction, by a long way, but these things are hard to find. We found one. It was thought if we got enough information about it, we might be able to trace from which star it was star system it was thrown out of. Well, that's that's been the the big question since it's now departed our solar system. We only got a very short time to look at it, but it was long enough to work out its orbit with reasonable precision. Um, and uh, its orbit isn't closed, so it came in in one direction, it's going out another. That's called a hyperbolic orbit to uh, astronomers, um, but it gives a pretty good idea of its outgoing trajectory and also allows you to calculate where it was in the past. You mm. can wind the clock back and say, well, we know it's passed through the galaxy. Where would it be um, a million years ago, two, 10 million years ago, and so on? And also, we have the Gaia satellite, the European Space Agency's amazing satellite that's just released all its recent data in April showing them the, the positions and motions of stars. And out, although it's measuring 1.3 billion stars and their positions uh, with amazing precision it's it it can also work out the actual true uh, velocity of stars within the, with with respect to the galaxy so you can use those 7 million stars to calculate back and where were they in the past mm -hmm. so just to put this in perspective what they've done is only use those 7 million stars out of the 1.3 billion that Gaia actually was measuring and said okay are any of these stars possible homes places that Oumuamua could have actually come from. And so you can actually just 
calculate backwards where was a muamua in the past, where were these stars in the past, and you look for ones that where it say came within a light year. Uh-huh. A light year's solar system size, roughly our solar system okay. is broadly that. So, and but the other the other kicker is it has to those two those two objects have to have the right sort of relative velocities as well because if if the velocities are too different then it's very hard to see a muamua having come from that source it would have had a different speed through space in other words if it had come from a star that was moving unusually fast for example so anyway so so just to put it into perspective yes they've found four stars within seven light years uh, the closest one's one light year uh, no not one light it's, cl- it's um yeah so they're they're all sort of relatively nearby stars to the sun um and these encounters would have been between one and seven million years ago when they left when it left its star if if those are candidates however there's no way of knowing that it hasn't been orbiting in the galaxy for a billion years in which case we have no show of ever finding the star so this is just a it's an interesting process it's interesting to see the Gaia information about star motions being used in this way because that's going to tell us a great deal about the motions of stars in our neighborhood but it's not uh it's not likely that one of these stars is actually the home of a muamua it's statistically unlikely more of an exercise in cosmic <coughs> forensics yes and uh, i mean it's 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 good to do it i mean it's good to do it but i mean it, you know this thing could have been traveling for hundreds of millions of years in which case it's mm. parent stars around the other side of the galaxy somewhere so right. it's not nothing and we will never know but anyway so um and unfortunately we didn't have it in our backyard long enough to get any m- much more information but the thing about a muamua is just how strangely shaped it was there is nothing in our solar system that's shaped like that that we've seen uh, that we've seen and uh, you know if it if it had been within sort of the, the um the inner part of the solar system where the planets are, if we had one, then we would have noticed it because you, you know, they couldn't miss it because right, it's so... Right, okay. It's uh, as they move around, something that shape, its brightness goes up and down so much it would be like a searchlight to astronomers. They'd sort of soon pick it out from all the other ones that are sort of roundish or a bit oval. Have a look that, at Blinky. That don't do that. Yeah, you'd want to know why it was doing that. So that was the thing that totally surprised astronomers nobody predicted that it would be like and it, it was marginally cometry too it was almost an asteroid but it just was outgassing enough stuff to just get over the bar and actually be classified as a, oh. a weekly uh, active comet isn't it incredible how attractive to the human eye a blinking light is yeah well it's actually attention doesn't it that's it why <laughs> <laughs> all right grant thank you so much appreciate it uh fabulous news this week and we'll talk again astronomy news next week this is the weekend variety ones on radio live just a heads up folks we've got a facebook page and it's a fun community i've been a bit lazy this week uh but i'll be back posting stuff um well i have been back posting stuff and a facebooker has offered up a suggestion why don't you get people to read their favorite poem I've been and gone and done some. We're going to start with Carl Stead next week. I'll give you some more details after new sport and weather and a John Cooper Clark bonus. How about that?